In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. Welcome back to K Billy Super Sound of the 70s. That was Jimmy Castor Bunch with Bertha Butt Boogie. Coming up next, we have a new segment we call a podcast with Craig and Carla Kikowski where they talk about movies such as Reservoir Dogs. Coming up next, we have Daddy Drew Bop, Daddy Doodrop with Chickaboom, Don't You Just Love It, K Billy, the radio station to have in the background, ironically, as scenes of horrifying violence play out. Uh, hi guys. That, that was Quentin Tarantino, right? That was, was a, that was a spot on QT, <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, like do you it. know, do you know who is the voice of the, uh, the DJ on K Billy? I did not. Are you familiar with the comedian Stephen Wright? I am not. <laughs> That's probably why you were unable to identify him. Uh, he was a huge stand up in the eighties, uh, known for his non sequitur one liners okay. or two liners. Uh, he had jokes that were like, um, I went to this restaurant and said breakfast any time, so I ordered French toast during the Renaissance. <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> it's a good joke. Uh, so I immediately, like, when you watch this movie in 1992, when you, Carla, watch this movie in 1992 and you hear Stephen Wright's voice, it's instantly familiar. But he's not as well-known anymore mm. uh which is too bad you know who is well known who's that our guest today our guest is uh, hi guys this is craig and carla this is <laughs> craig's list and we're gonna be talking about a little movie called reservoir dogs today and our guest is a longtime improv cohort of mine uh you may have seen us in uh the group dasariski <laughs> he is the Ari in dasariski and is also an emmy Winning? No. <laughs> Peabody Award. Peabody winning. Award winning Emmy, multiple Emmy nominated, uh, writer of every funny comedy show that you've ever heard of, including the Saturday Night Live, Mad TV, The Tonight Show, Key and Peel. And his name is Rich Tellerico. That is me. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Rich. Hi, Carla. Hi, Craig. Thank you for having me I'm here. I'm excited you're here. It's... Happy to be here. We, we've waited far too long to get you on this thing, but this was a movie that I wanted to pair with you specifically yeah. because we have a long history with it that we yes. will get into. It was real important to him for you to be here for this one. I, so. I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> what, where are we on the list? If I this is number 59 on the list. Episode 42 of the podcast. <laughs> uh, and this was Carla's first time seeing Reservoir Dogs. Very first time. She'd never seen it before. And nope. this is a 1992 film, the writing and directorial and acting, I believe, debut of Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Is it his acting debut as well? I believe there is a film credit that he's listed on on IMDb that's earlier than this, but it's total bullshit that he just put it on his resume in order to make people think that he had a King just... Lear and I think Dawn of the Dead are two <laughs> movies that he said he was in. That's yes. hilarious. He's actually in the 
the Golden Girls. He plays an Elvis impersonator in Golden Girls. Uh, for real? Did he for really real. do that? Yes. Wow. That's in a 1988 episode of Golden Girls, you can see him in that. <laughs> and he did do some films. And, you know, Reservoir Dogs is a uh, kind of like pulled out of a bigger script that included True Romance and Natural Born Killers. Really? That there was a bigger script that they pulled from, and they also pulled this from that pile. And I think there was some trouble over who wrote what with him and uh, Roger Avery. Roger Avery, yeah. Whoa. Um, yeah, I, this he was uh, working at a video store in Manhattan Beach mm-hmm. and uh, was the quintessential film nerd uh, that had an encyclopedic knowledge of everything in film history, was working on the script. He was going to shoot it with his friends on 16 millimeter for $30,000. In black and white, and he was going to be in it. He was going to play Mr. Pink, the Steve right. Buscemi role. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, somehow Harvey Keitel got a hold of the script. Yeah, they started to put money together, and then they sent it to one guy named Monty Hellman, who directed some of those like road horror. I'm forget, forgive me, I don't know. He a did ton a of lot of stuff. B movies in the yes. '60s and '70s. I think under the like the Roger Corman banner. Yes, probably. that's right. And yeah. he thought he was going to direct it, so he read the script and met with him. But and when Tarantino was like, "No, no, I'm going to direct it," or whatever. He still liked it enough that he put money in, and I think that's where they started to, you know, where the ball started to roll. But I think he had some of his own money put into it, and then they eventually got up to a certain amount of money, and that started to attract more. So they got a bit of a budget, like $1.5 million. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot for an independent movie at that time, right? Or no? It's $30 million today. <laughs> no, I don't know. I made that up. I know. <laughs> that's how inflation works, folks. Yeah. Just pick a number that makes your jaw drop, and that's the right number. And... uh he was able to get, you know, some pretty well-known actors and some other actors that were kind of like on the rise at the time, you know, for a, uh, a unbelievably strong cast, uh, of Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, uh, Steve Buscemi, Tarantino himself as Mr. Brown, uh, Lawrence Tierney, uh, Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde, uh, Eddie Bunker, Eddie Bunker, uh, mm-hmm. the immortal Eddie Bunker. <laughs> And uh, it's about a heist, a heist that we never see. We see uh, the lead up to it. We see the immediate uh, aftermath and fallout. And uh, it's mostly these guys trying to piece together what happened during this heist as well as uh, seeing some flashbacks in their past. Uh, just like we talked about with Pulp Fiction, this movie uh, does interesting things with time. And when this movie premiered in Chicago, I think think probably in late 92 maybe early 93 it was a revelation in the improv community uh (laughs) and that's one of the things i want to talk to you about today of just like how big this movie was in our particular circle of friends at that time well huge and it was playing (laughs) when i got there at the village theater at north and uh, clark i think okay and wherever the village theater is at North Avenue. And, uh, it was there Friday and Saturday nights at midnight. So by the, and I went almost every weekend, at least one, sometimes twice. What? So by the how time, many times do you think you've seen this movie? I was just thinking about it on the way over here. And I thought that by the time Pulp Fiction came out, I had probably seen Reservoir Dogs at least 10 times. Wow. And that's wow. like pre video cassette, probably, or maybe not. On well, the, probably, yeah. On the big was. screen. Sure it was. Of course yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, and, but I remember one, one of the screenings I went and, you know, there's like that moment at the end of the movie. Can I talk about that moment? You know, sure. like when the movie ends and it's just like this cut to black and then the titles pop up and the song pops on. And there's this like moment where you're supposed to like kind of take in the, you know, geez, what a ride, you know, like this moment of silence after. And the guy behind me was like, 
that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, it was what does that a, guy expect out of a movie? What does he need <laughs> that that didn't know. provide? I mean, it was so exciting to me every time. It was like a roller coaster that was, you know, fun to go on, you know. Yeah, I, I saw it at the Three Penny Theater, which I think is where it had its first run. Which the Three Penny Theater is worth thirty million today. <laughs> <laughs> inflation, man, yeah, inflation, uh, and that's right across the street from the Biograph at Lincoln and Fullerton. We also should do this podcast out of order, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a really good podcast, uh, Rich. Great we'll have job, you back guys. Very it was great. Soon. Thanks. Anything you want to promote? You know, I just wanted to say this has been so great. <laughs> now everybody's wondering what happened on the podcast. It's amazing. Right. Well, we're going to drop it in later. And I've pay. been shot. <laughs> <laughs> Who shot Carla? Somebody in this podcast is a rat. <laughs> you're going to you're gonna be okay, me. Carla. Say the fucking words. You're going to be okay. It was me. I'm the rat. I shot myself. <laughs> Carla's the rat and shot herself. Well, I think we've paid off all the loose ends, folks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw it at the three penny, which I don't know if that's still standing today. I'm going to guess not, but, uh, that, uh, usually had more like art house movies, if I recall. Wasn't that where Dillinger was shot? The Dillinger was shot in the alley next to the biograph. But it's across the street. Yes, across the street. So, yes. And there's a line in the movie where he says, dead is Dillinger. Dead is Dillinger. And Lawrence Tierney played Dillinger. What? In an older <laughs> film. Weird. So there's a triple Dillinger going on, just in case anyone was counting the Dillingers. Wow. Richie, you're out IMDBing me today. Like, Good. We, Somebody we, needs to. I have an earpiece and I'm... <laughs> Somebody I, is feed, Quentin I, I, Tarantino I, I, is feeding I, I, you these... No, no, man. Don't say that. <laughs> uh, but my friends... I saw it with my friends, uh, Pam and uh, Lisa. Greer? Pam Greer. <laughs> And Lisa Bonet. <laughs> Lisa Bonet. You know, it was just a time when I was rolling with some hot black ladies. Yeah. Um, but uh, Pam and Lisa were my best friends from my improv uh, first level class uh, with Sharna Halpern. And we did everything together. And I think Pam saw this movie first. No, I mean, it was Lisa. Lisa saw the movie first and was like, you guys have to see this movie. It's incredible. And we all went to to see it together. And I probably did see it a couple. I didn't never saw it at the where, where did you see it? The village, the village theater. That was and that was like a two dollar midnight showing kind I, of thing. It might or? have even been five bucks, but I could be five wrong. bucks. Okay, I could yeah, be wrong. it's cheap, cheap late night theater. Yeah, midnight show. Uh, I don't think I ever went to see anything there. Honestly, uh, it was broken seats and sticky floors. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, when new improv teams were formed at the Improv Olympic at the time. Uh, you would get a temporary name and then you'd come up with your own lame name to, uh, to replace that. And just as Craig's telling the story from the 1900s, we are on rocking chairs and I'm whittling. <laughs> what are you whittling? A harmonica. Of course. <laughs> and I'm going to play it plaintively once it's done. Good. And so all of the, uh, the, Decision makers at the theater, the guys who kind of the real uh, power brokers, the power brokers. <laughs> <laughs> this, by the way, is an improv theater where nobody made money, and there was maybe like forty people there total, <laughs> and there was maybe like uh, six or seven improv teams. But a bunch of new teams were formed, and uh, they named them after the characters of Reservoir Dogs. So there was a, a Mr. Pink team, there was a Mr. Brown, there was a Mr. Orange, and there was a Mr. Blonde, and. 
uh, Rich and I actually were not on this team at the time, though you were on Mr. Pink, right? That's right. Which my be- first team. Which be- and I was your coach. That's right. Aw, you guys. <laughs> and they gave those team names to not delineate. Sorry, Carl, I interrupted you. No. But to, to not delineate, you know, which team was being picked first. Status. Not, or not, but yeah. not like team one, team two, team three. Because be like, they, they literally used they to used have to like that, team yeah. A, team B, team oh, C, and you totally like, knew who like, Sharna oh. liked more. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Rich was on Mr. Pink, which eventually became Frank Booth. Another movie reference. Another movie reference named after the Dennis Hopper character in Blue Velvet. Oh yeah. A, a movie I think that you loved just as much as you loved this one, Carl. Right. <laughs> and you also told me that you confused Dennis Hopper and Harvey Keitel. All the time. Um, they got the same DNA. No <laughs> But uh, the team that eventually we played on together was Mr. Blonde, and that was the team that never changed their name, named after the Michael Madsen psychopathic character in the movie. And I guess because he's the coolest character, maybe, maybe arguably, uh, he's the coolest character in the movie. That, and it was just a good name. Mr. Blonde's a good name. The good most name handsome. for an improv He's team. the most handsome. You like Michael Madsen? Yeah, he's yeah. Pretty, pretty cute. Uh, and we had that team for about two and a half years. Who else was on that team? At first, it was uh, John Rosenfeld, who founded Boom Chicago in Amsterdam, Ed Herpsman, Neil McNamara, Doreen Calderon, uh, Gwen Ashley, and then later, Laura Kraft. Hmm. Rob, oh, Rob Mello was a founding member of the team. Uh, a girl named Tina Fey that I I don't know what happened to her. <laughs> she pl- played with the She's team a Greek, for a while. Greek girl. She's a Greek girl. Wow. Uh, and uh, Stu Harris and Michael Jeffrey Cohen, and that's the, a lot of people. Well, they weren't all on the, at the same time, but uh, by the end, I think we had six of us on the team. And the final performance of that team was on the premiere night of Pulp Fiction. There are so really? many. Cl- yes, it almost seems like we were lining up with Tarantino somehow <laughs> on all these significant days. And I told this story uh, when we did the Pulp Fiction episode. Uh, and I, I hope that I got the story right, but <laughs> I think I know the story <laughs> that you're going to tell. I was not there, because, but a bunch of you guys from the team went to see a matinee showing of Pulp Fiction on the day it premiered, it, right? Yeah, it was like 2 p.m. or something. We went downtown to like, you know, a theater no one ever went to before. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it was such a knockout. I mean, it really. Why don't you was, tell the story? Yeah. Well, okay. I'll do my best. I mean, I think I know the story yes. that you're going to tell. Yes. The worst and, case scenario is we get an extra story out of this day. So yeah. <laughs> that's good. So Stu Harris and I are driving in <laughs> Stu's car up, you know, through the city and we're going to go do the last show. And, you know, Stu, I was, there was like the class clown and the class comedian. <laughs> you know the difference between the class clown and the class comedian? Please tell us. The class clown is the guy that takes his pants off at the 50 yard line. <laughs> and the class comedian is the guy that told him to do it. <laughs> at that time, I was 19. You know what I mean? I was very much the class clown. And I got a lot of joy out of doing things that Stu wanted me to do <laughs> so as we're coming we're i mean we're on cloud 10 because this movie was so good reservoir dogs meant so much to me as a movie and i was like wow this is going to be a sophomore slump is this going to suck it was so good we were just on cloud nine and we we're having such a good time so as we're coming up lincoln Stu, the class comedian says yell out what happens in the movie <laughs> like you know one of the bigger reveals in the movie is this the story yeah okay. yes and so I roll down the window of Stu's car, and as we're going by the biograph, and there's like this huge line of people, and the sun is setting, and everyone's got their ticket, I yell something like, Bruce Willis kills John Travolta. 
<laughs> and it was like a drive-by shooting. It was like in slow motion. And you could see like almost like how a wave goes around a stadium. You could see everyone's faces just kind of turn as the car was. <laughs> I mean, if the car had failed, we would have been probably killed. Uh, rightfully so. No, absolutely. In it was, mob justice. Absolutely. It was horrible. And I, I'm blaming it on Stu. I, I got to accept responsibility for me. And who knows? Maybe I'm making up that Stu part. But I thought, I thought, I know that around that time, like we used to do a lot of goofy shit. We used to try to make, you know, we would like, pick at whatever really bothered everybody around us the most. So we were real instigators back then. <laughs> Not like now. Not like now. I told that story. I, I I think I got the basic facts right. You added a lot more color to it. And I, I like t- the Stu side yes, character. I, I missed the aspect of Stu being the devil on your shoulder convincing you to do it. Well, we used to torture another friend of ours who I won't mention, but who had a thing that like <laughs> would make him ill. You know what I mean? Like he would get physically ill. So we used to kind of torment this friend you know what i mean by trying to like say things that would freak him out i mean you know we you know, what do you want i'm i'm 19 i moved to chicago i'm watching blue velvet and reservoir dogs i'm hanging out with all these crazy comedian people uh i also had a huge mr blonde poster uh that i had on my the wall of my apartment at, at waveland and broadway uh the movie was just indelibly impressed in all of our brains. Mm. And uh, to this day, I, I know almost all the dialogue <laughs> verbatim, you know, Same. uh, and, uh, it's, it, it's such, such an important movie, but it's interesting. Uh, this being Tarantino's first, you've probably seen every other Tarantino movie, but not this one. I don't know that I've seen every one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Carla, this being your first time seeing it, what did you think of Reservoir Dogs? I really didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) With respect uh, to nostalgia and also probably appreciating the fact that at the time it was, it felt new and fresh and exciting. And I can absolutely see those things. Um, But it was just too violent. It's just not my type of movie. I just can't watch violence for the sake of violence and walk away feeling like I spent time well <laughs> now i i know this is not your type of movie it's an all-male cast there you see a woman or two no there's no speaking female roles in this trying film. to think of that this morning the I final cut think of one. No, I, I read online that there was a one scene that got cut but there's no with a female speaking, cop yeah no speaking female because they talk about a waitress but i think that's the only time you don't even see her that yeah. they even Oh no! Then they also say some upsetting things about black women later on. They shoot a woman. woman. They shoot a woman. There's another woman who gets thrown out of the car that I think Carla, you called out as obviously a male stuntman in a wig. (laughs) Yes. Isn't that also true in Pulp Fiction? Aren't there some people being pulled out of cars in that too? Probably. Yeah. Remember. But uh, yeah, I mean, this sets all of the the Tarantino themes in motion: Uh, crime capers, movies about movies. Uh, casual, uh, violence, uh, juxtaposed with pop cultural references, uh, people just kind of sitting down and talking about pop culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's all there. And I think there is something, I, I will admit this, um, after having just seen Pulp Fiction recently and seeing this again, Pulp Fiction probably is the better movie. Mm -hmm. I had Reservoir Dogs higher. I will probably move Pulp Fiction ahead of it. Uh, but there is something about being there at the beginning of something and 
Tarantino, not a name when I saw this movie. I didn't know the first thing about it, just that my friend dragged me to see it, and I was so blown away by it. Uh, and, you know, it's like the people who insist that Bottle Rocket is Wes Anderson's best movie, <laughs> too, which is not true, but it, 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 it's a nice debut. But I think I didn't see it when it first came out, and those people typically did. Like, that was their first exposure to him, and there's something about... Uh, being witness to a distinctive voice when they first debut and feeling like you're a little ahead of the curve on it. Context is everything, and there's definitely a context shift if you're seeing it for the first time after you've probably seen movies that were influenced by it. Mm-hmm. So there's things that are probably right. going to ring to you where at the time, like you said, I mean, the other movies that were coming out, I mean, this is just before movies like Forrest Gump, right? There were, Forrest Gump was 94. 94, but, yeah. So, I mean, like, that's the air. I mean, what movies were coming out that were accessible. I mean, I guess Blue Velvet was another movie that was also rocking our world as, you know, young improvisers in Chicago in the early 90s. Yeah. So that was something that kind of got passed around. And that for me really was my college experience. You know, mm-hmm. like a lot of times people go to college and they watch, you know, Caddyshack over and over. But for us, it was this <clears throat> this movie in particular. And I think, you know, our improv team was named after it, which we kind of embraced the movie on a mascot level. And the music from the movie became important. To Everybody us had the soundtrack. We yes. l- listened to it at parties all the time. Oh, yeah. And some of those songs in the movie like became repopularized as a result of it. You know, Little Green Bag uh, by George Baker selection, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel, uh, Coconut by Harry Nilsson, uh, and Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Swede are all used prominently. There's no score in the movie. It's only needle drop songs. Mm-hmm. Uh and there is something about when they're they're having a conversation up top about listening to the seventies uh, radio station, uh, it is kind of true, like in that era, you know, when you don't have access to all the songs ever at your fingertip constantly, like people do now. Uh, I mean, there's certainly songs that like stay in rotation, but then there are songs that were like hits 10 years ago. And then you literally never heard them again. Mm. Nobody played those songs. And I think Tarantino was kind of looking for songs that like were big at the time, but had kind of like fallen out of popular consciousness. And he kind of, remade them you know Mm -hmm. in his image uh but uh, particularly because like i saw it with my female friends and i I just think there's a lot of dialogue in it that's very funny and and knowing how much you liked pulp fiction this last time i'm like well reservoir dog isn't really her kind of movie in that it's a crime movie it's very testosterone driven there is some violence in it but i'm like i think she'll she, she might find uh, some things in it to uh, to take away. Yeah, it's a real tough one. It, Quentin Tarantino is just honestly, and I was really thinking about this today because I wanted to make sure that I really felt this way before I said it. But I think seeing this movie made me dislike Quentin Tarantino even more. <laughs> like his bad habits here are so uh, knowing that this is his first thing. It just feels like such a <clears throat> pattern of insensitivity and outright <laughs> uh there's some n-words in crazy, there yeah like yeah. R- crazy crazy inappropriate things yeah. to be that there's are being said and done some b words some f words uh the f word fuck is said many times it's got a very high fuck count for a uh it's it's hard because I don't want to make anybody feel bad. I know a lot of people who love this movie. Sure. You know, well, um, look, you know, there's there's things that are going to keep you out of the party because of the subject matter, right? Um, you know, Michael Caine says in his, he's got a great acting book where he says audiences want to go places they're not allowed to go, 
but if you don't want to go there at all, I mean, you're never going to, you're never going to want to go there. But like, I think to a certain extent, to me, it's a roller coaster that you're never going to get hurt on. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's things about it that despite the violence, I still find it incredibly good. Cause I had a friend ask me recently, do you like horror movies? Mm -hmm. And I was like, nah, not really. And he goes, well, what about like The Exorcist? And I was like, oh yeah. Yeah, (laughs) What about The Shining? Oh, I love that one. What about Rosemary's Baby? Oh, that's the best. So like, I do like, well, you know, simple material, well told. I mean, that's, yeah, there's something about this that as I I watched it this morning and to prepare Mm -hmm. to come on and talk about it. And it, for me, it just felt like what's really fun about it is, I mean, it is out of order. And if it was done in order, I mean, that would change. And that's the context, you know, style is the, um, you know, the management of information. And as he gives you certain pieces of information, you're like, oh, wow. And in your mind, you're spinning this plate. Wow, this guy's been shot. That's really the first scene of the movie. I mean, the waitress thing is kind of like a, yeah, you know, like an overture, overture. Yes. Right. And then you get to, this guy's been shot and that's a spinning plate. He's going to die at some point, but also who's a rat and all the other pieces of information. Like you're spinning all this pieces of information and everything that comes on screen, like when Mr. Pink shows up, it's like, oh, here's another complication. But he does have the diamonds, but they're not here. Now you're spinning those plates. Mm-hmm. So when you do the scenes that are really set up scenes, when you're meeting Michael Madsen and you're like, but oh, I'm also thinking about all this other stuff that's going on and I have to wait and now I have to sit here and watch this. So I love the style of that because the way he puts out that information, it allows you to spin all these plates. He goes, but then we're over here and there's kind of like this omniscient feeling you have watching it, which is really, I think, very powerful and fun. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, stylistically audacious, and I think that's as you know, seeing it in my early twenties, uh, you know, beginning to get a grip on film history, but having many things that I had not seen, uh, just to see somebody who was toying with me in that way, but then also rewarding me uh, in in paying off all all those things. It feels like it gives the audience a lot of credit for being able to piece things together, and uh, that's that's exciting too. But I think that there's also something about seeing it in your late teens or early 20s of like you can take a little more of that stuff of like you're not quite an adult yet. Mm-hmm. You haven't like been in the adult world and, you know, you're more aspirational of like, you know, you're, you're hoping to be an adult <laughs> one day. So I think you can yeah. you I- can put up with a movie that's this uh, vulgar I think, at that age. I think this just wasn't made for me. Honestly, this Definitely is a movie not. that was made for white men <laughs> to enjoy, you know, and I'm not saying that in a way to, again, to disrespect <laughs> anyone, but there is no... I don't identify as a male or white. <laughs> I'm just a human being. You know, like... There's You're just, just a disembodied voice on a podcast. It's just this... It's not... Yeah, it's just not made for me. So it, so I'm going to have a hard time connecting to it. It doesn't matter how good the style of it is right. or the arrangement of the pieces if the pieces aren't... <laughs> Of, of the material aren't interesting to you. Yeah. So you could make a dress of the finest quality or a suit of the finest quality, but if the material is this plaid fabric that I don't like, it doesn't matter how well it fits me. Right. right. And I do all the things that you said, I completely can appreciate. Like I, I, I get it. And I also think, and I was thinking this this morning as well, when I was like, what nice things can I say about this movie so I don't ruin this podcast? I was thinking <laughs> Quentin Tarantino consistently has incredible actors working for him. Yeah. In his movies. Like all of these actors are fantastic. So that's something that I can appreciate. Well, as as watching it again today, like looking what the characters got to do, they all got to do such incredible right. pop huge wheelies. Mm-hmm. And there's so many huge moments. These are actors' moments. And like I know the dialogue driven script, it's mostly dialogue when you look at the yes. script. I mean 
that's an actor's dream, right? As opposed to walk in, do this, walk out. I mean, it's like we're going to cut that later. But these are long passages where the actors are. It's really about their relationships. And you know the crucial decision to me in the movie, which just is just from watching it, by the way, I'm kind of just throwing this out there as a side note. Nice Guy Eddie is the one that has the idea that he should join the gig. He's, he's been on Lucky Rabbit's foot. Why don't we get him on this? Yeah. Right? That was like the dumb son's one contribution. <laughs> he's like, okay, yeah, sure. Because otherwise it just, you know, they would have all gotten arrested. Yeah. But it turned into this bloodbath because of that, which I thought was kind of great. Like the simplest <laughs> dumb suggestion from the, mm. from the dumb son. The more times I see it too, I think my, my favorite performance in the movie might be Chris Penn. Actually, I think he's really, really good. How many in Penn it. brothers are there? Well, uh, Chris passed away a few years ago, and there's Sean, and there's Michael, and there might be another brother who's not an actor or a musician. Bick. Okay. Bick Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of him. Uh, he's a writer. He's a writer. <laughs> His name will click. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. Uh, <laughs> no, that was the best. <laughs> Well, I also read, and this is again, you can probably look this up on the internet yourself, but I thought it was interesting that Sean, or that Chris Penn said nothing about Madonna in that opening scene, and he didn't mm. want to really talk about it apparently because uh, of his really? relationship. Sure, yes, like, they were divorced by then, right? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sean and Madonna. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked about, uh, Tarantino's use of certain words, uh, in Pulp Fiction, and, I think, you know, it's maybe a, uh, it's an appropriate thing to bring up when discussing him, but I will say this of like all the, whether or not it's, uh, okay for Tarantino to use those words. I will say it's authentic to, I'm sh- sure that these guys, that the characters yes. that he wrote absolutely talk that way. He got away with it because, but now it's just like, can I keep finding ways to get away with saying the N word? Yeah. And at a certain point you're going to go, but you know, Eddie Bunker was a crime writer and probably wrote in a very similar style. Mm-hmm. This is based on, you know, he wanted to make a movie like The Killers, which is that Hemingway short story. Yeah. And, uh, Kubrick's. Film yeah, that. the killing. Yeah, at this point, it's such a pa- Sorry, it's yeah. such a just a bizarre pattern that I don't know. Like he's he's done it. He's done that thing. Find yeah, something no new. Hey, look, <laughs> I, I I don't defend the use of of, course. of, of these things, at, but I'm saying as an orchestrated <laughs> film where these elements, you know, it is all organic to the world. And I think, look, hey, he can get away with it because that is the world. And to me, I think there's actually the movie's got an incredibly redemptive moment, which I'm sure you know the moment, because I don't think that the violence is meaningless in this. I think it speaks to the characters. And if you have a psychopath who's now mixed in with these guys, which is in a script form, a complication. Mm-hmm. It's a great complication. It's like, oh, and by the way, not only is there a rat, because it would have just been, if it's just the rat, what do you got? Yeah. But it's a rat and a psychopath. So I think that's a great complication. And when it comes into the story, it's like, oh, and by the way, here's this guy. But I do think the violence can be justified in the sense that as bad as the bad guys are, and they're pure evil, this one guy in particular, right, is pure evil. That's how good the good guys are. Because the guy who gets his ear cut off could have just said, that guy's a cop, this, that, and the other thing is I don't know anything. He just said it. He was going to get burned alive and still say I don't know anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when the other guy goes, hey, or when Tim Roth's character, Mr. Orange, goes, hey, I'm a cop, and he goes, I know. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the moment of the movie. I'm like, that's what makes this movie worth it because it's like he would have gone down with the ship. Um, and he did. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Spoiler. I, th- I think also seeing it that first time that those developments were so shocking to me yes. like you just did did not see it coming uh i will say that carla watched most of this movie we did skip 
five minutes in the middle, <laughs> which I kept telling her was the most famous scene and of the I movie. I just got too angry and I had to. <laughs> so leave. Carla missed, uh, Carla missed stuck in the middle with you and she missed, uh, the, uh, the ear cutting scene and Mr. Blonde getting shot. Yeah. I, I don't regret and, and, it. Well, I don't regret it for a second. It's as incredible, but to me, it's as incredible as a storytelling goes. <clears throat> I mean, look, if you're willing to go into this world and go, yeah, but I, you know, if you said, look, we're going to do it, we're gonna show you an incredibly structured movie about, you know, crocheting, I would probably say, well, you know, I don't know. I, I don't care about that subject matter, <laughs> even if it's really well done. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is also like, you know, this, this world does exist. He's not inventing the world. He didn't invent these words. I'm not making excuses for him, hopefully. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, in this instance, because I'll say there's movies of his I don't appreciate. Um, and I kind of got off some of, you know, I'm not really, like, I felt, you know, I'm not going to get into specifics, I guess. Yeah. I don't want to really rag the guy, because obviously, I think he's going to make it. <laughs> and he's, he's listening to our podcast. Always. That's right. Hey, I know. Hi, hi. How you doing, buddy? But no, I just think that like there's definitely things that I don't I, I don't want to go. I felt like the the violence in Django bothered me at the end of the movie. I felt like it yeah. was kind of excessive and you know that and because I didn't feel like it, you know. But in this one, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I I still cringe and it's still pretty grisly to watch. And you know, actually, the actual moment when he does cut the guy's ear off, spoiler alert, um, you know, they don't even show it. Yeah. The camera kind of just glances over here. It's a really interesting camera move, and then the camera just kind of comes back after it's over. So it kind of forces you to picture it in your mind, and it's probably going to be the worst image than they could shoot. Mm-hmm. Many people to this day swear that they've seen the ear being cut off, but it's not actually shown on camera. It's who? <laughs> people. <laughs> Anecdotal people. <laughs> Somebody I've been at all. You don't know him. You don't know him. <laughs> uh. Hearing a lot of things about the ear being cut off. A lot of people have been telling me this. <laughs> it's out there. The grapevine. Um, that of course, my Stephen Wright. Um, yeah, and, but the other thing that he, Mr. Blonde does, uh, I think Carla knew that a torture scene was coming and did not want to see it. Yeah, uh, but I mean, he, you can feel the tension going in that direction. Michael Madsen turns on the radio and stuck in the middle. Do you know that song? Of course. Yeah, is playing and he does a little dance, uh, to it. Uh, while brandishing the, uh, the razor. But I also say that that's not a lone moment. Like that moment is connected to also watching these guys bond over the fact that this K Billy weekend is going on. Cause I also remember those weekends from my own, from those, from those days. This movie's 25 years old. So Mm -hmm. back in the day, that was a true thing. So I just feel like back then it was like, oh, they're playing the top 100 rock songs of all time on whatever. (laughs) And everybody talked about it. You go, where where are they now? They're at number 35. (laughs) It was like, you know, that was a conversation that happened. So I think as you're watching these guys bond over this, the moment when the most bubblegum song comes on, it's a juxtaposition. So to me, it's not just like, here, I'm showing you this violence. It's forcing you to kind of like spin all these plates and try to reconcile. You know, you just want to, you want resolution, but he keeps holding the resolution away from you and forcing you into these other situations, which I understand is not a pleasant experience to right. a lot of viewers. But yeah, it's the strange juxtaposition of like, Oh, I love this song. It's a great song. <laughs> and then, the, then you're laughing, you're laughing uneasily as Madsen is dancing to the song, you know, and it's so the juxtaposition of different things that are going on are so strange and you have no idea of what's going to happen. And then an ear getting cut off. Also a thing that happens in, 
blue velvet on wow. looking love. No, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's those those little links. These are the and movies that Carly that doesn't like is when ears bringing up blue velvet too. <laughs> like, For me, it was the same era, right? I mean, that's ninety three, eighty six. Oh shit! Well, ninety three when I saw it for the yeah. first time. Yeah. Um, Again, so that's just another thing for me. It's like these movies are made for white guys. <laughs> like here's, young. <laughs> here's the other movie we just saw that uh, I think was in a similar vein is Baby Driver. Yes. Right. I, I, I mean, because like Edgar Wright, in a lot of ways, is a is a new Tarantino because he's the guy. I who's guess like, I never thought that before seeing Baby Driver, though. Well, because he he opened with you know broader comedies, you know, mm-hmm. in style parodies kind of thing. But I think Edgar Wright is also the guy of like I've seen every movie, I know every movie reference, I've heard every song, I know every you know every pop culture reference, and I'm gonna juxtapose them in weird and new mm-hmm. ways. Right. Uh, but you know, Baby Driver probably the first. Did you have you seen it, Rich? Yes. Uh, probably the first like hyper violent movie that he's done. Well, I guess like Shaun of the Dead. I mean, Hot Fuzz, they're pretty violent too, but in a cartoonish way. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But I, oh, but I think I'm those. So exhausted. <laughs> uh, and then, but also the idea, I did read one quote from Eddie Bunker, you know, who had actually served time and was a, you know, a hardcore <laughs> criminal and before becoming a, a writer and actor and, uh, and him saying, well, like the plot of this is completely ludicrous of like, you would not do a gig with five guys you didn't know and didn't right. trust. Right. And baby driver picks up on the same conceit of just like, here's three strangers doing a job right. together, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So did, did, did you, do you see a parallel between those two movies? No, not, I mean, I, I get, get what you're saying, but it doesn't feel the same to me. Yeah. Um, I just remembered that this was one of those movies that when I was in college, we would go to a guy friend's house like once every other week or whatever and watch movies. And this was one that I, I think I left the room for. Maybe. Really? But also like, uh, what's the Paul Newman pool movie? Color of Money. Didn't watch that that night. Or The Hustler. Uh, could have been either. Also, um, Big Lebowski. Yeah. They played that all the time. Sure. Didn't watch that with them. Those sound like some guy movies. (laughs) (laughs) This is in that category. Um, so I kind of missed out on all those movies, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, you guys, whatever. It's, it's just not my thing. Do you think the difference with you and Quentin Tarantino is Uma Thurman? If Uma Thurman's involved, yeah, maybe. I really enjoy, um, although I haven't seen the movie since they came out, but I, I really did enjoy Kill Bill. Well, here's a question then I have, I guess, for the podcast. May I ask a question? Yes. Mm-hmm. So to the podcast. That, yes. Um, I mean, I guess it becomes a question of, you know, what worlds – it's not a world that doesn't exist. Right. It's just worlds we don't want to spend time in. What worlds do we want to go and yeah. dig around in? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing – another thing that – another protector to me, I guess my question is, you know, what other – are there other movies where it's like, oh, the subject matter – but I really appreciated it on a filmmaking level. Or is, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Because I do feel like, yeah, I don't really want to watch horror movies, but I love The Shining. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so entertaining. You know, from you know, obviously in so many levels. But yeah. I'm sure you're doing The Shining, or you've done it, and you're doing it. Not in the top hundred, but wow, uh, wow, this is a hard list. <laughs> it's a hard list to make. <laughs> and then you've got some real confusing ones on it. <laughs> Maybe The Shining belongs. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, and that's not to say that I only enjoy movies about women or starring women. That's not that's not true either. I mean, Dog Day Afternoon is one of my favorite movies. Love that. And movie. that's a very male centric story. Yeah. Um, 
but it's characters you care about. Yeah. Like you care about Pacino and Cazale from the, from the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even though they're, they're criminals and, 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 and they're kind of bumbling their way through it. And there's a lot of violence in that yeah. movie. And I can stomach all of that. So I feel you. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, why one person likes one thing and doesn't like another. I mean, there's just so many elements. Yeah. And there's, you know, and it's not just the violence. It's also the, the language, you know? Yeah. Um, I, but I, I really enjoyed watching Pulp Fiction this last time I saw it. So maybe if I had seen this at a different time in my life. Yeah, definitely. I uh, mean, it's so different. I would have understood it or, cared about it more but last night i just felt so violated <laughs> watching it well it felt like my whole body was just upset which which i guess is you know if you want to talk about art and how art affects you um and make if you th- are still thinking about it the next day you know maybe it did its job but it would never be anything i want to put myself through on purpose <laughs> you know well let's listen to the soundtrack of carla's violation by doing a little segment called carla's quotes She's feeling her oats and Craig's taking notes. Whatever they are, it's Carla's clothes. So the uh, the opening diner scene, by the way, shot at uh, Pat and Lorraine's coffee shop in Eagle Rock. Mm. Ever been there? No, sir. Uh, a, lot- <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it shot in Eagle Rock and Highland Park, uh, similar to uh, Pulp Fiction being shot in Atwater and uh, Echo Park. Uh, these are the parts of LA that don't typically get shown. On I know. Film. I do love that too about Quentin Tarantino's, some of his movies when, when he does use LA, it's always like there was a great scene that was just on top of a building in a parking lot that just looked like any parking lot on top of a building in LA. And yeah. I was like, yep, never see that in movies. That's so fun. Yeah. Well, a lot of it was locations that they could get for their budget. The apartment that Tim Roth lives in is logistically above the warehouse. Yes. Oh, wow. And also when uh, Busimi throws the woman out of the car, uh, they did not get street clearance from the LAPD or get a permit from the uh, the city or anything. So they o- they could only do it while the uh, the light was red. <laughs> so oh, my gosh. They literally That's were trying funny. to steal that shot yeah. uh, on the street. Um, but Carla right away said, another fucking diner scene. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, that speaks to the context. Mm-hmm. You're not watching it like we were watching it in 92. Right. No, we're like a yeah. diner scene. Who, where is this coming from? So many movies in the, the 90s though had diner oh, scenes. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> Pulp Fiction, he ripped himself off, you know, right away. But again, of like, it's so incongruous to have these hardcore criminals talking about Madonna and like a virgin. I think that like culturally, uh, opening a movie that way, let me tell you what Like a Virgin is about. <laughs> it's so strange. And, you know, again, if you're watching it, if you're 22 years old in 1992, you're like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing, you know? Uh, and to hear Eddie Bunker saying, you know, like, I like some of her earlier stuff, Borderline, you know? Yeah. <laughs> when you get to stuff like True Blue, I turned out, tuned out. Yeah. <laughs> it's shop talk. Uh, which we talk about in improv all the time. You oh, know, just like, yeah. let's just let the, what do these guys just talk about? If there's nothing at stake, what's their life like? Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting and I thought it was also similar to like the second city idea of let's see everybody in the cast early. Yes. Generally as themselves. And that's mostly what it is. You're kind of hearing them and seeing them and you go, okay, I guess these are tough guys. And he's basically like kind of saying, here, here's the players of the, of the piece. Yeah. Here's these six criminals who are about to pull off a heist together and, uh, the two, you know, mob bosses, uh, behind it. Uh, yeah. and, uh, Lawrence Tierney plays Joe Cabot, the boss, and he was an old B movie actor. I just watched one of the 
extra features on the uh, DVD, which is basically the cast members just uh, talking smack about Lawrence Tierney in a <laughs> kind of a fond way because apparently he was just a fucking nutball. <laughs> and that's why he never really crossed over <laughs> into becoming a bigger star because he was so difficult to uh, to work with. Funny. Uh, also well known as uh, Elaine Bennis' dad on Seinfeld. <laughs> Wow. Uh, um, real quick, going back to the shop talk thing, do you think – was that something that you guys started talking about around the time that you were on Mr. Blonde? Probably to a certain extent. I know that Pulp Fiction was something that, you know, it's just like, yeah, what are these guys just talking about? It, and that's interesting and you don't see that in movies, you know? Yeah. I think it was more when we started doing more like character-based long form improv rather than like, you know, faster, like Harold scenes of like when you have to sustain a scene longer than five minutes or whatever, then you've got the luxury of being able to dig a little deeper into people's behavior when nothing needs to happen anytime soon, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you've got to, you know, sustain the audience's attention somehow. And so you've got to reveal character just by like, what are their concerns? What kind of stuff do they talk about? You know, what is this particular subgroup of people talk about and how do they talk about it different than anybody else would? It's also to me relevant in, and I'm sorry if I'm taking too long to get to the next quote, but no, no, also relevant to in that another big element of the movie is Larry, which is uh, Harvey Keitel's character. Mr. White. Yeah. He cares. Mm-hmm. He cares. And there's a part of him that cares. And right. that ends up being a flaw yeah. to the bad guy. So he, it doesn't serve him. And it actually ends up hurting him. Because it also there's a point in the movie when he's like, well, we can't take him to the hospital now. Yeah. At one point, that was a plate that was spinning. Can we take him to the hospital? Then Mr. Pink finds out, oh, you've told him your name? Well, then no, we can't take him now. And that kind of, right. again, the, all the values of the movie shift again. He's like, okay, now they can't take him. So to me, I completely hear what you're saying about like all the subject matter, but I was just having such a good time watching it in the mm-hmm. twists and turns of like, you know, like good, you know, forces of antagonism tie the main character's hands. Everybody's hands are tied the whole movie and it keeps getting worse. I, I don't know. I just really had a good time with it. And then uh, Joe Cabot is kind of going through his black book of contacts and mumbling to himself. And he's like, Toby, Toby. Uh, And Carla said, did he just say who the fuck is Comey? (laughs) (laughs) You think he was talking about James Comey? No, I just thought maybe somebody was named Comey in this movie. (laughs) Very common name. Sure. (laughs) Comey. Uh, you also said, uh, speaking to the coffee they were drinking, hey, we have mugs like that. We do. Right behind you. See those brown ones hanging on the wall? Those are the Diner br- mugs. Diner mugs. Diner mugs. Those are the brown mugs. You know, it's very possible. <laughs> they might be. You're in Atwater Village. You never know. These might be the exact same mugs. I did get them at a thrift store down the street. It's very possible when the movie wrapped, they sold them to a thrift store not too far from here. These are the Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> One million dollars. Anybody contact me. Uh, Carla... <laughs> By the way, what do you what do you think the title of the movie means? Oh. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Reservoir there's, dogs. So there's, there's no reservoir in it. There's no dogs. I don't know what reservoir dogs are. Dogs who are thirsty for water. <laughs> so they go to the reservoir. First place you'd go to look. Dogs who hang out by a reservoir? What do you think? What have you heard about the title, Rich? That's what I always thought it was, and I don't know if it's wrong or not, but I always thought that it was that it referred to like Dogs that might hang out by the reservoir that are just looking for something, like and, that, and something? that's the stray dogs. Yeah, yeah, just like a, and that's kind of what the world that you're entering is the world of these guys that. And again, I could be completely wrong, but that's always been what I know. I should have IMDb that. I didn't. Desperate even. dogs. 
Uh, apparently, there's been a few stories that Tarantino has told, and they they haven't been the same each mm. time. But uh, it usually involves the movie Avoir les Enfants. Oh, boy. Uh, when she worked at the video <laughs> store. One story says that a customer came to him asking for Reservoir Les Enfants mm. and Straw Dogs. Mm. And he just combined the two titles together and thought that was... So I think basically Tarantino got in and said that Reservoir Dogs would be a cool title for it a movie. It is a cool title. Uh, but I, but did I make that up? I mean, I've heard that before, the definition or the, but maybe not. I don't know. What was the other one? Uh, the, uh, I guess it was also told where he recommended Avoir Les Enfants to a customer and the customer said, I don't want to see no reservoir dogs, <laughs> which I kind of like better, but that, that sounds phony, you know? Uh, I don't know. There was also a Liz Fair song around the same time called Dogs Valet. Um, that also mentions a reservoir. And, uh, for some reason, I just, I conflated those two things in, in my mind. You know, this is years before even going to LA. I think in, in my mind, there's just wild dogs running around the, uh, <laughs> the LA river. Uh, but then in the opening credit sequence, it says they are reservoir dogs, right? <laughs> it is a weird choice, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> they are. If they are reservoir dogs, okay. I'll go with that. I think it is that the, like, Stray dogs who aren't being fed or drinking water need to go get some nourishment. <laughs> well, there are there is a reservoir in, in the area where they were shooting, right near near to where sure. they were shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Silver Lake. There might be dogs near. You know there is a dog park there. The Tim Roth was played park. by a dog. <laughs> Carla, right away, I have a hard time paying attention. It's just a lot of white guys talking. <laughs> What's your beef with white guys? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, this was one of the things that my friend Lisa loved about this movie because she was cheap and did not like to tip. And she loved oh. the, Steve, the Steve Buscemi defense of not Gross. tipping monologue. Uh, which I, I actually enjoyed that monologue from, yeah, that was interesting. It's, cause it's, I, it's not an uninteresting point. It's like, right. yeah, why don't you tip the people at McDonald's? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, but Carla said, did he start that whole thing <laughs> <laughs> of not, not tipping waitresses? Yeah. Uh, well, there was a thing after that on Seinfeld, right? Or was that it? Seinfeld or something? The where- tip, the, the guy, he puts the tip in, but the guy doesn't see it. So then he goes to like take it out so he can do it again. So yes. the guy sees it. Yeah. But the guy turns around as he's putting his hand in the jar. Yes. <laughs> and he gets caught as if he's taking. And the guy's like, hey, <laughs> I was trying to tip him. That was a good bit. Was it, was it, did it happen to George? Or is George? Yeah. Oh, that, was remember. that your George impression? <laughs> that was my George. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> really good, George. Harrison. Yes. But this was, to me, this was the real breakout role for Steve Buscemi. He's like, really great in it. I'd seen him in a few things before this. Like, he had definitely been in Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing, mm-hmm. Coen Brothers movies. I'd seen him in Mystery Train, the Jim Jarmusch movie. Uh, and he also, the first thing I was conscious of him uh, there was an ad that used to play on MTV. Did you ever see this? Yes, I know what you're talking about. And this is back when he was a performance artist in New York. And it's this little weird, you know, MTV used to have like interstitial ads for itself <laughs> on mm-hmm. the air. And it's him uh, coming up to a woman and saying a bunch of song titles with dance in them, right? Um, he's like, do you want to dance with me? Uh, I want to uh, dance, dance with somebody who loves me. Uh <laughs> 
And nobody can talk faster than Steve Buscemi. Yeah, it's amazing. And so it, it literally is him like, I, I'm going to have to find this thing. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It's like it's him rattling off like 20 song titles in a row. But that's that was the first thing I'm like, who is that guy? And yeah. then he kept popping up in little roles in movies. But this was his real breakout as a scene stealing, you know, supporting actor. Then that title sequence, man, just like we talked about how Pulp Fiction is like that visceral feeling of like, and you're like, wow, this is a movie. And I think seeing this for the first time of just like, I mean, Swingers parodied it only a couple years later, the the whole walking in slow-mo, guys in suits walking in slow-mo, the bane of many a improv team photo for years. <laughs> uh, and then just seeing all the actors' names, you know, against their their faces are reservoir dogs. It's to Little Green Bag, which is such a cool song, you know, and so it's just a, a visceral thrill right away. Uh and and Carla said, Who directed this? <laughs> later she said she okay. said she was mostly kidding mostly kidding but she also knew there were tarantino movies that he wrote but did not direct yeah uh and i had forgotten about natural born killers yeah he wrote that one yeah him and i guess the other guy uh oh, avery right. was so involved that, in yeah. that it was a bigger script called the open road which i guess had a lot of stories of crime and okay you know they were inspired by like the asphalt jungle and okay movies like that and they wanted to write like a crime thing but they had tried he tried to get a few different projects going and couldn't and true romance was one of them that he couldn't get going and then eventually i guess tony scott directed that yes and there's character names that that he used in both this and pulp fiction uh, I believe he's because, uh, Mr. Blonde is, is Vic Vega, mm. brother of Vincent Vega, uh, John Travolta from Pulp Fiction. But then there's other names like Skagnetti. Oh, wait, are they brothers? Is he said that he, int- the he intends them to be yeah, brothers. There's an Alabama in, uh, Alabama is Patricia Arquette in yes. True Romance. And that's, uh, supposedly Harvey Mr. White's Gonzalez. old yeah. partner in crime that she has mentioned. Whoa. There's a Skagnetti in both movies. There's a Marvin. There's a Marcellus. You know, so it might just be that Tarantino just likes names like that and uses them multiple times. But I thought that the open road script was like a 500 page script that had like all these pieces that were able to pull out. Like they had written mm-hmm. so much material. And I think that's why he wrote like the Reservoir Dog script in just a few weeks. Oh, wow. Um, when, uh, and, then uh, we we see the scene of uh, Mr. Orange bleeding out in the back of the car. We get to the warehouse, which is where they're supposed to rendezvous. Uh, Tim Roth is Mr. Orange is dying. And then uh, then they start saying the names a lot at this point. So if you didn't catch it uh, in the diner thing, you suddenly get the idea that these guys are all named uh, Mr. Blonde and Mr. Pink and whatnot. And Carla said, my name's Mr. Color Color. <laughs> <laughs> I was very confused with uh-huh. the names. Okay. I will say that. But that could have just been because I was having a hard time connecting when they were first introduced. <laughs> sure. Uh, but I kept asking you when they were talking about the different colors, which one, You're which like, actor. Who's that? Who's that again? If you said the actor's name, then I knew who it was. But I, I think. You, you don't really know. So when they start talking about Mr. Brown being dead, you don't, you're not supposed to necessarily right. remember that that's Tarantino. I don't know if they even said that in the opening scene or, or whatever, you know. It's not till later <clears throat> as a flashback. You see the names. Yeah. Uh, and then when Steve Buscemi comes in and, and, you know, he's agitated and talking real fast, talking to, to Kaitel, 
Um, our friend Bob Dassey, who we had on this podcast <laughs> for the seven episode, the third man in uh, Dasariski along with me and Rich, Carla said, oh my God, Bob Dassey is Steve Buscemi. How have I never seen that? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, though. Like, at least in this There's movie. There's a fire in their bellies that are yes. very similar. Yes. Wow, they just, yeah, they can just keep going. <laughs> When the lady gets thrown out of the car, Carla, that's a dude in a wig. <laughs> Noticed it right Very away. Very thick calves. <laughs> uh, and then Mr. Blonde is one of those characters, you know, a, a great old technique of like keep talking about people. I mean, I know we've seen him in the opening scene, but he's barely said anything. So everybody keeps talking about how Mr. Blonde went crazy. Mr. Blonde is a psycho. And so it's, it, it's all setting him up for his yeah. entrance later. It is incredible. And there, there are so many like... And you can, oh, and I was actually pausing the movie and I was like, and that's gotta be the hour mark of the mm. movie. And it is. It's the midpoint of the movie. It's the moment when, you know, uh, Mr. Orange sits up and shoots Mr. Blonde. It's an exact, you know, you can look and it's like, oh, that's half an hour into the movie. Like yeah. it's really, it's a page turner in the sense that information changes and the insight changes based on the new things that are mm. happening. And you're like, oh, now what's going to happen? And I think it, it, you know, to me, it culminates so well with the Mexican standoff where it's like, and now, the finale. Here they all are again in a different kind of circle than we saw them in the beginning of the movie. Mm. And it's come full circle. Like it really does. And it goes right back to the, when Mr. Orange was shot, right back to that moment again. Yeah. So I don't know. To me, it works in a, in a level and I can stomach the violence because I also think it's yeah. like, well, that does, he didn't invent that. That does happen in the world. And if you're doing that movie, I mean, you mm. know, you could say, Hey, I don't want to see anybody get their head chopped off then don't go to friday the 13th but you know it does it scare you does it do what it needs to do as a film like yeah I, for me it still works and uh but it doesn't work in every you know tarantino movie there's definitely right. movies where i'm like nah no thanks <laughs> yeah the uh the warehouse that they shot in, I don't know if it was actually a mortuary or if that was like a decision but you can see a hearse and then several caskets which is another mm-hmm. like that's a like a nice little <laughs> touch of like these caskets that are wrapped up in plastic. That. Yeah, it looks like an embalming type place. And I read online, I don't oh. know if this is true or not, but like there's all these references in the movie which I didn't even notice. I knew know the orange balloon, you know the orange balloon moment right when Chris Penn is driving, he's on the cell phone and his car goes by. There's an orange balloon that bounces out of frame. People say that that's a clue that Mr. Orange is the informant. Another clue is that there's those bottles of liquid in the warehouse scene early when Mr. Pink and Mr. White are you know getting their heads together. Pink and white liquids are in a jar on one side and an orange liquid is on a jar on the other side. People say that that's another clue. And the third clue is that when he goes, who didn't tip? Mr. Orange says he didn't. So Mr. Orange is the, is the cop because he's kind of saying this guy didn't tip. (laughs) So people, people seem to think those are the connections and the pointing to the mystery. Uh, Carla said of the warehouse, looks like the warehouse of a serial killer. But now that I know that it was an embalming place, <laughs> maybe it was. Sense. I mean, it seems like that's what yeah, it was supposed to be with gurneys and stuff. And of course, I'm typing this up on my phone, and of course, I have predictive text on my phone. And what do you think the top three words that it predicted would come after serial? Let's do a little family feud. <laughs> killer. Killer was number one. Rapist. Rapist was number oh. two. Do gooder. Cereal. It's never a good thing, is mom. it? Mom. <laughs> Looks like the warehouse of a serial mom. No. Uh, <laughs> That's a movie, right? My phone predicted killer, rapist, and landlord of the three words that I might want. Serial landlord. Serial landlord. That's what? the new Tarantino title. <laughs> that just sounds right. <laughs> he keeps renting the place, and he can jack up the rent if he kills the person in the unit. <laughs> 
like, well, I guess the last person died, and I can raise the rent a little bit. Oh. Don't open this one door, though, in the back of the apartment. just came up with a whole new movie That's right Tallarico. That's why you won that Peabody, dude. I'm like, give him a title. He know, he's got the elevator pitch already. He's ready. That was great. I'd watch that movie. They keep saying who's violent though. Yeah, I'll still watch it because you wrote it. You're my friend. <laughs> they keep saying who's the rat, and Carla said, "I bet it's Quentin Tarantino." <laughs> <laughs> Not Mr. Brown, Quentin Tarantino. Did the mystery do anything for you? Just out of curiosity, like were you like, "I wonder who the rat is," and do you, did you care, or did you not care? Did it like just keep you out of even? You know? No, I, I, yeah, all the things that you're saying. Yes, those like the puzzle part of it is really interesting. Um, but I think because I disliked those other things so much, it it made it harder for me to appreciate the puzzle thing. Although I do appreciate it in a sense. But can I, I mean, there's one sequence in the movie we didn't really talk about. Can I just throw out one thought about that? Yes. Yeah. There's the one sequence in the movie when he gets the story. Mm-hmm. It's broken into four parts. He gets the story. He rehearses the story. Mm-hmm. He performs the story. The story becomes real. Yeah. To me, that was transcendent moment in a film when he pushes the thing and you hear the overwhelming sound of the the hair the hand dryer yeah to me that was a a, a moment in a film that was so powerful because and it reminded me of the improv game where you trans where it's like it is thou art i am right yeah i mean it it felt like that and it was such a invocation yes yes i took that to mean that it was becoming real for him he convinced them i mean that's how good of a cop he was i thought it was like the best possible cops and the worst possible robbers. That's what that movie was yeah. to me. The, di- the dirtiest of the dirtiest cops and the best of the best. Or sorry, <laughs> the dirtiest bad guys and the best cops. Yeah, I think the uh, the drug deal story that he tells and the way that Tarantino shoots that is the thing that that puts this movie into the like the all time pantheon for me uh, because it, it's just again so audacious and so inventive and and really mind blowing and. Y- because his advisor, you know, the, the other undercover cop who's, who's kind of telling him how to, you know, handle this story and everything tells him, like, you got to know all the details, you know? Mm-hmm. And so an, another improv rule, just specificity. And Tarantino is, like him or not, he's one of the most specific filmmakers, uh, in terms of, uh, every choice that he uses, brand names, fake or real, uh, pop culture references, you know, he's put a lot of thought into the character names and everything. So when we finally see Mr. Orange's story, these are details that he completely invented. Mm-hmm. You know, those cops are so perfectly cast. They look like the guys who, who were on trial for beating up Rodney King. I mean, <laughs> like th- this is the they look like just douchey right. fucking racist L.A. cops. You know, that guy's got a perfect mustache. Again, this is Mr. Orange is probably picturing guys on the force. And then in the middle of it, the cop is telling his own story about an anecdote about a traffic pullover gone wrong. Mm-hmm. So he, it, with, there's a story within the story. It, it's so it becomes, crazy how it, many levels are there. It becomes otherworldly at that point to me. And you leave. <laughs> it does. I mean, you leave. You're now in this world where he is. He's doing the thing he needs to do as a cop. But he's showing it in such a cool way. I think that's such a good directorial. Yeah. Because I do feel like in Baby Driver – the, all I can say, if I said, what did the director do in that, that I remember was just put the camera in a big circle and keep spinning it around. Right. People. It was just like, you could feel, in this movie, I felt, I actually had an experience in Reservoir Dogs, but I, I didn't have an experience in Django, for example, or other, right. you know, movies. I think, you know, what you guys are talking about is you watching a, a movie 
at that time that, and you had never seen a movie made that way, you know? And now me seeing it in 2017, it's like, I've seen really bad. Actually, you were saying this earlier. I've seen the bad version of this many times, maybe, or whatever, but just those big reveals of some good versions, some good versions. Like I'm thinking of like Memento, which I really liked, but that's one where it like is revealed on all these different levels or what is the Kevin Spacey one? That's not (laughs) Capex. Oh, Dasa Reese. End it there, baby. Do you think Dassey would have said it too? I think so. Uh, no, the other one. The. I wrote. <laughs> no. Um. Guys, come on. Sorry. Kevin, Kevin Spacey. Spacey. A usual suspects. Yes. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying though? Like yes. I've already, I've seen a lot of movies. Oh, like I mean, that. Usual Suspects yes. was a huge so Tarantino ripoff. Yeah. Watching this yeah. last night, I didn't feel. Right those kind of like explosive moments in my brain when they were coming together. It was just kind of like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's okay. And it was, you know, just, right. but think of how it changed improv and how it changed comedy. And I, I would say reservoir dogs is somewhat responsible for pinata full of bees mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Like it just changed the way we as comedians were looking at how we can tell stories to, yeah. to a certain extent. It was somebody saying you can do really whatever you want. You know, as long as you allow everything to come full circle. So to me, it's like, yeah, he took huge risks. He tried mm-hmm. a lot of crazy shit, but it all worked and it all kind of came back together. So yeah, uh, Pinata Full of Bees was a groundbreaking uh, Second City review in 1995 um, that had Adam McKay in it. Adam McKay, one of the guys who decided to name the improv teams after the characters from Reservoir Dogs. Uh, back to the quotes. Carla said, I always confuse Dennis Hopper and Harvey Keitel. Yes. I think of Harvey Keitel as the quintessential New York guy and Dennis Hopper, the quintessential LA guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's, that's the LA that's the difference and New York freak. Yeah. But they're, they're in a similar vein. Are they both definitely gone. Uh, Keitel's still around. I just saw him. <laughs> How's he doing? How's he doing? He's great, man. He's great. Did you guys have coffee? <laughs> When we see Mr. Blonde's flashback, he's going to Joe's uh, office, and uh, and Joe is sitting between two gigantic elephant tusks. And Carla said, "Is he in a whale's belly? <laughs> 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 they could be whale ribs, I suppose, but well, they, uh, they they're, they're clearly he's, I was he's a, with his yeah, desk. They're clearly illegal ivory that he had uh, poached. Somehow. It would be fair to say that that could be the belly of the whale motif part of the film." Because you're finding out mm. that there's a psychopath involved, and that is like a, a you know part of the movie. I mean, I, making a reach, but um, <laughs> maybe there's a connection. Interesting. At the 47 minute mark, how much longer for real? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Get about an hour for left real. At that point. We do uh, keep talking on this podcast about how few movies I have on my list that actually have cell phones in them. I think there's really only a couple because most of them have been made far before the uh, cell phone era. But there is a cell phone in this that uh, that nice guy Eddie, Chris Ben's character, has. And Carla said, that's the cell phone that my Barbie had. <laughs> it's true. Just a gigantic-ass phone. <laughs> Except it was pink. You also said acting... Probably was what killed Chris Penn using that cell phone in that movie. <laughs> Uh, Carla said acting in those phone conversations are hard. Yeah, I was impressed. Like that when he's on the phone in the car, I was like, whoa, he's a really good actor. That sounded really <laughs> hard to, hard to like do a phone call. Really yeah. real. real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't remember what this is. Uh, obviously referring to one of the needle drop songs, but Carla said uh, maybe it was uh, hooked on a feeling. Oh, no. Uh, because... When uh, Mr. Orange is at the diner talking to his cop buddy, there's like some – you hear some like country western music playing in the background. Oh, right. And Carla said, that music is really distracting. You're not going to write that down? 
<laughs> so there's a request for a Carla's quote from Carla herself. There you go. I thought it was coming from outside. I thought it was our neighbor. <laughs> you're, you're like, are, is that our neighbors playing that music or is that on the it movie? It just felt so off with the scene but maybe that's the point maybe that's him being like hey look at all these things look at all these plates i can spin right when we see when we see the four cops in the bathroom carla said wonder what happened to those four actors (laughs) law and order (laughs) one thing they do keep talking about you know this is another cell phone related thing of just like where's joe we got to get in touch with joe you know like nobody can get in touch with each other because they don't have phones and carla said is this before the internet (laughs) No, I said that because they were talking about. Oh, they were. They wanted. To, it was about a song, right? They couldn't remember who sang a song. Or yeah, something? like they just kept going. Right. Back Always, and I, forth. I remember it's when they're having the conversation about Pam Greer right. in the oh, back of the car. He goes, "I'm totally yes. tortured." At one point, he goes, "Because uh, who is it? says that Steve Buscemi says that. yes." I'm, now I'm tortured. Now I'm totally fucking tortured. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's. By the way, something that's only occurred to me the last couple times watching the movie is that Mr. Pink is gay. Uh, at least I think that, I think that that's how Buscemi is playing him, you know, and when they have the scene where he gives them their names, you know, he's like, why am, why am I Mr. Pink? And, you know, he he uses the, the F word, you know, derogatory term. Uh, but I, I think it's, I think it's true. I think he's saying you're a gay guy, (laughs) you know? Really? And there's other things like, uh, in the opening diner scene, he's like, what's nice? Take you in the back and suck your dick. And Buscemi kind of makes this face, you know, of like, he doesn't really engage in the the macho talk that the rest of the guys and do. the bag that he carried the diamonds in was a Gucci bag. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also like there's a little look that Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi give each other in the back of the car when they start to bond. Oh, I did you know, notice that. It's like a little little homoerotic in some way of like I, I don't, did notice that. Yeah, I don't know I that is bonding. You know, because I mean they're driving over to the initial meeting in that scene. That's when he because he gets picked up for the first time, like or the, the meeting where they're getting their names, right? Yeah. I, I saw that moment. I also thought that was just them like, hey, yeah, we're bonding o- over pop culture, you know, which to me is, a, is you know, him using that technique to, to do that. Let's call Steve. Let's call him. Uh, we have Steve Buscemi on the air. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Craig, what's going on? Um, <laughs> really good. <laughs> at the end of the oh, uh Carla threw in, uh, I hate this movie. Um, not sure exactly what the point was. Also, I'm, I was, this, this is when the credits roll. I'm thoroughly disgusted and sick of these movies. Wow. I was, yeah. I just. Yeah, you saw it after. You've probably seen many movies that were inspired by it. And, and I just seen, felt yeah. so exhausted after watching it in a way where I didn't feel. And again, this is not to disrespect you guys or your opinions. I totally, I have movies that I will stick up for too that, you know, sure, I sure. were very important to me. But I just felt exhausted in a way of like, I've seen so many movies like this and I, I don't want to see any more like this. <laughs> Are there any more like this on the list? Craig? Probably. We went through the whole list to see how many things were in this van. I don't have too many more crime related movies and nothing that I, I think is as vulgar as, is this, mm-hmm. you know, but there's definitely some movies with some violence that might be, uh, difficult, but a lot of them are more like in the war variety or a few that are in the few that are in the gangster variety, but nothing quite like this. Hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned a couple that you have seen already, so I guess that they won't be as bad. Uh, Mr. Pink, the one character who does escape, or does he? 
I don't think so. I just just watch the cops today, get him outside. I hear gunshots. I feel like no. Oh. I feel like nobody lives, to be honest. But <laughs> that's just my feeling. And I think maybe it is left for you yeah. to kind of go. To me, the moment that is when you know Harvey Keitel finds out. He makes this incredible moan. He finds out that he's been lied to, and you know, for him, that's him absorbing all this insight about oh shit, that, you know, he knew, you know, now and so seeing him suffer like that. But he had already been shot too. Like everybody's shot at that point, except for Steve. Shemi who goes yeah. outside and I think you hear a bunch of shots but maybe he shot his way out again yeah possibly I was really hoping he got off hey, Reservoir Dogs 2 will show him <laughs> Carla said he gets the diamonds he was the only professional that's the theme of this movie the moral of the story be professional because <laughs> he kept saying that the whole time <laughs> I'm a fucking professional let's be yeah. professional Kaitel says it too right you can act like a professional yeah, yeah. oh so funny you're gonna bark all day little doggy Harvey Kaitel is really great in it I yeah. didn't mean to interrupt your impersonation. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just ran over your bed. Not at all. Uh, but he has that great monologue, Harvey Keitel, when he's yelling oh, at Mr. Pink, right? Yeah. What is what is that about? What was that? Do you remember? He's standing over the... Uh, I forget. Well, that's when they're arguing about taking him to the hospital or not, Oh, yes. Right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's what it is. And so, yeah. I think shit. you actually said that's a really good monologue. People should use that for a scene study class. But I don't remember what was in the monologue, though. What was the it, it nature was, of it? it? I think it was all about how this – it was his fault that this guy had gotten shot and – Oh yeah, I saw him take it in the belly and it was my... Yeah, he's not the rat yes. or whatever. He stands up for him. Yes. There's so much dramatic irony in the movie though where we know better than the characters on screen. Yeah. You know, like even when you watch, you know, Mr. Orange go out the door and he's like, you're a tough guy, you can do this, don't worry about it, you got this. Yes. We're all like, dude, it ain't gonna... That's so good for you. <laughs> so I don't know, to me that those are fun elements for an audience and, you know, Billy Wilder says audiences want to add up two plus two. Yeah. I was like, I had my pencil out the whole movie. I was like, there was so much to a lot of math so much to like take into account and the new things being presented that add insight in weird ways and you're like well this is before then but it still matters and i think we did so much of that in improv i mean for years after we were doing improv like that and experimenting we did an improv experiment based on mystery train even i remember yeah um close quarters was another show that kind of used collapsed time so it was the same five minutes of time in adjacent spaces Mm -hmm. you know so we i think this movie was inspirational and you you've already experienced these things you know so it's Mm -hmm. like years later 25 years ago this movie came out 25 years of things being influenced by reservoir dogs yeah and then you see the original it's like you're hearing you know you're seeing the original voice of it, it might i can see why you you know yeah like oh, i've seen this already yeah mm-hmm. no doubt mm-hmm. uh richie is this an a movie for you oh yeah i mean it's in my top 10 easy maybe in my top five i mean it's it's way up there for me just because i i can still enjoy it i've seen it so many times i think the performances are great i think the directing is incredible like i said that transcendent sequence where i do think the movie kind of feels like a Kubrick movie at that point when he goes into the stories. It kind of has that like otherworldly feeling to me. So I don't know. I, I, I love the movie and yeah, I think it's great. I agree with all your criticisms. I think your criticisms are valid. I don't say they're invalid in any way. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, some people are going to miss out on this ride, but you know, I, I get it. I wouldn't go on certain rides too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Carla, you want to give this movie a letter grade? Well, I was going to give it an F, <laughs> but I will for say for, for real fun movie, uh, but you guys have, I can't appreciate. Won you over. 
Uh, I, changed yeah, your mind. I'm still never going to watch this movie again. But I can can't. we get you to a D plus? Yes, I will give it a D plus. <laughs> D plus. Yes. Where are you with it? Uh, what, what does the D plus stand for? Dang it, you guys convinced me. <laughs> uh, this movie is staying on the list, probably staying about right where it is at number 59. But I think I will move Pulp Fiction ahead of it. So mm. Pulp Fiction is going up from where it was before. Uh, Richie, you want to improvise a little scene? Yes. Okay. You want to g- give a little voice to the waitress that we never got to hear from? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. So R- Richie and I can play various characters uh, from the gang and Carla, Carla will be the waitress. It sounds good. All right. Give these guys whatever the fuck they want. Where are we going to sit? Where's everybody going to sit? Because, you know, I, it's, a, it's a circle, so there's no head of the table, but where's everybody going to sit? Well, uh, there's menus. Okay, okay, shut up. Oh, ooh, okay. I'm just, a, I'm just a waitress, so I'll do as you say. Let, let the lady talk. Come on. Oh, oh, I was just saying that there's menus in front of each chair. Um, so just go ahead and take a seat, seat anywhere. Just get comfortable. You take my seat in a dream. You better apologize. <laughs> uh, we're, we're a big party, so uh, you know. Sorry if we're uh, you know we're we taking up too much space here. No, not at all. As long as you tip me, I'll put up with any of your bullshit. We're gonna tip. That's what we do. Everyone's gonna put in a buck, and I'm gonna get the breakfast. Get the Denver omelet. It's real good. Does anybody want to split home fries with me? Because <laughs> I know we're going about to do a job. Should I say that out loud? But we're about to do a job. What, what is everybody going to get? I, the home fries here are actually really delicious. This guy with the fucking home fries. Um, I'm a single mom, and <laughs> uh, this is my only job. So I have a few other tables to wait on if you want to go ahead and order. Got, got to pay the bills. So It's tough being a single mom. It really I re- is. I really feel for you. Thank you. That is so kind of you. I appreciate it. My name's Larry. Larry. Oh, shit. <laughs> I mean, uh, Barry. My name is Barry. Oh. Barry White. Barry White. That sounds familiar. Don't tell anyone your goddamn name. And you're Stephen Wright? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm Stephen Wright. Got fucking Barry White and Stephen Wright over here. <laughs> I was a big stand-up in the 80s. Maybe we should just push some tables together. Yeah, whatever makes you comfortable, you guys. My friend George, he's a radio announcer. When he walks under a bridge, you can't hear him talk. <laughs> um. So coffee? Coffee? Anyone? Do you have brown mugs? <laughs> Actually, we do. We're, we're known for our brown ceramic mugs. <laughs> as uh, long as it's in a brown mug. I love my a- name is Mr. Brown. <laughs> I'll have a chai latte. A chai latte? Is that a thing yet? Are you <laughs> sure? <laughs> and see. Yay! Sorry, the cat is going crazy. They knew that we were improvising, and the yeah. cat wanted to get in on the... <laughs> Our animals hate it when we improvise. Uh, Rich, thank you so much. You were, you're, you were so insightful always. And, and I mean, you really have that writer's mind and breaking down uh, a screenplay. Like uh, you, you just have so many interesting and smart things to say. I really, really did hate it less after listening to you guys talk about it. Truly. (laughs) Uh, Richie, anything you want to promote? Uh, where can people find you online if they want to follow you? You know, I have a website now. It's called richtellerico.com and you can find me on the other social medias. Nice. Uh, and, uh, Carla, 
we should promote some things. Actually, what we, do we, should, got? we could all promote that we're going to the Stumptown Improv Festival. Oh, yeah, Stumptown Festival. Improv Festival in Portland. Rich and I and Bob Dassey will be there with Dasariski. Carla yeah. and I will be there with Orange Tuxedo. That's the first weekend in August. First weekend in August. Maybe the 4th through the 6th, I'm going to yep. say. Yeah, we'll be doing workshops as well. So Yeah, check it out. And then Orange Tuxedo will also be going to the San Francisco Improv Fest uh, two weeks after that. Yep. And one week before San Francisco, one week after Portland, we'll be at the Detroit Improv Fest. Yep. Festival. So, uh, go to Google and uh, Google. Go to Google and Google Orange Tuxedo, and you can find out all the stuff. Go to Yahoo and Google. Uh, Well, Carla, do you want to see a movie about murder and uh, psychopaths? I can't wait. Okay. Well, this movie is more uh, classic Hollywood because it's from the early 1950s. Okay. And uh, so it it can't possibly be as violent as as this movie, but it has. Potentially disturbing subject matter, but made palatable perhaps by the greatest director of all time, Hitch, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. This movie stars (laughs) Will Smith (laughs) as Hitch, the greatest film director of all time. Movie stars Farley Granger and Robert Walker, and it's called... Strangers on a Train. Oh, I've never seen this. You've never seen Strangers mm-hmm. on a Train. Okay. Nope. And I, but I'm excited to see this one. Okay. Well, that's movie number 58 on Craigslist. And we'll be covering that next week. Uh, please tune in. Thanks again, Rich. And uh, Thank we'll, you. Thank you, guys. We'll Thanks, see you guys Rich. soon. The list is an absolute good. The list is life.